0: Church, go ahead and take your seats, would you please? And as you do, I want to invite you to take those Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 contains perhaps some of the most wonderful and some of the most shocking verses of Scripture that are found in our Bible In Ephesians 2, we discover the true true condition of humanity, and it is far worse than any of us would like to have to admit. But also in Ephesians 2, we discover the amazing grace and goodness of God, and that is far greater than any of us could ever imagine. If we fail to grasp the seriousness of sin, if we fail to truly understand uh, our reality apart from faith in, in Jesus Christ, then we will never fully grasp the wonder, the awe, the power of the gospel. Paul begins this section by reminding the Ephesians of the way in which they used to walk. He ends this section by telling them the ways in which they are to walk now. So they've moved from a walk of death to the walk of life. And they only made that move because of the wonderful love and grace of God. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, although this paragraph that we just read, although it is grammatically complex, the main thought is clear. God has made us alive. That's verse number five. God made us alive, and then verse number 6 tells us that He raised us, and He has seated us. Believers in Christ have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised with Christ, and we are seated with Him. Verse 5 is the central statement of this whole section, reminding us that salvation is a result of the grace of God. Now Paul draws a sharp contrast between a believer's past condition and their present condition. And so here he starts with the past, and so will we this morning. We're going to start with the past, our past condition prior to faith in Jesus Christ. And so verses 1 through 3 reveals the hopelessness, the helplessness, the spiritual lostness of all mankind. Paul wants his listeners and readers to know the seriousness of sin. No one can escape the truths that are contained within verses 1-3. through 3. Not one person is exempt from them. Whether we claim to come from a, a strong spiritual background, or, or whether uh, we pursue a life of uh, pure pagan debauchery, verses 1 through 3 describes everyone apart from Christ. And so notice what he says in verse number 1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So first of all, he says, apart from Christ, you're dead. Remember from last week, the death that he is talking about is a spiritual death. In the Bible, the Bible speaks of three stages of death. There's the spiritual death, there's physical death, and then there is eternal death, or the Bible uh, refers to that as the second death. Paul writes that before Christ, we were dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins. So those two words are, are not the same, but they're dealing with the same issue. Uh, Take, for instance, the word trespass. Uh, Trespass means crossing of a boundary or wandering from the path. Whereas sin means missing of the mark. Uh, Sin is falling short of a target. So taken together, combine them together, I think that these two words cover both the active and the passive aspects of sin. In other words, it includes the sense of commission and the sense of omission. The sense of commission, that's that's the wrong things that we do, the sinful acts that we commit. But that's not the only sin that we're guilty of, because we also fail to do the right things sometimes, and that would be a sin of omission. And so uh, Paul is painting the picture that before the holiness and the righteousness of God, we all stand before Him as both rebels and failures. As a result of sin, we are spiritually dead and separated from God. Paul wants us to clearly understand our condition before the Heavenly Father in order that we might clearly see His grace, love, and power displayed in and through Jesus Christ. So before Christ, we not only were we dead, but we were also deceived. Before Christ, we all walked or lived under the influence of Satan. Look at verse number two. Verse two says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You know that mankind was never created to be evil or to do evil. Evil originated from an evil force operating within the spiritual world. The Bible calls this evil force Satan. So, so the spiritual world has access to the physical world. The spiritual world has has influence over the lives of those that are in the physical world, and Satan is the great deceiver his character is deceitful, his schemes are dishonest. Satan seeks to influence people for his own agenda and the, the sad reality is when Satan seeks to influence individuals to pursue his agenda. We all too often buy into the lie and follow what Satan puts before us. Those who walk in disobedience very simply are those who refuse to obey God. They refuse to do what God says to do. They choose to do what they want to do rather than walk in obedience to what God has called us to do. I want you to notice what the Bible has to say about this. It says that this person is classified by God as one of the sons of disobedience. A son of disobedience. See, before Christ, we were all children of disobedience. We belong to the family of disobedience. But in Christ, we make the transition from being a part of the family of disobedience into the family of God. So before Christ, we were dead, we were deceived, we were disobedient. Not only that, we were ultimately, we were condemned. Verse 3 says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So the resulting condition of our death and our disobedience is that we are recognized as by nature children of wrath. So so God's holy anger against sin is directed uh, to those that are by nature sinful. And so humanity has absolutely no hope apart from Jesus Christ apart from Christ, we are condemned, we are hopeless, and we are helpless. The doctrine of God's wrath is extremely unpopular in our culture today. We want to to only speak of a loving God, a a forgiving God, one who will deal with us in ways that gives us assurance that everything's going to be okay. We portray our God as only being a God that will pick you up and pat you on your back and and gingerly handle you and direct you in life. We speak rarely do we speak about the harshness of the judgment of God that is pending upon those that are disobedient to Him. We find it difficult to think of a God who might be angry with His creation even if that anger is righteous. When we stop and you think about it, none of us operates in a manner in which we think God ought to behave. For instance, when we see injustice or when we experience injustice personally, we cry out and we want the offender to be caught and we want justice to be rendered immediately. However, when, when, when we're the offender, we take a different tone. When we're the offender, we want, we beg, and we expect grace, love, and forgiveness to be extended unto us. And, and so if God were to behave like us, then uh, there would be absolutely no justice in our world today. The trouble with our view of justice is that our view of justice is tainted by the mindset that's described in verses one through three. We would be far better to have a perfect judge. We would be far better to have a judge who is not contaminated by sin, one who is not uh, have uh, influenced by, uh, by personal agendas. We would be better to, to have the perfect judge who has perfect standards, the perfect judge who who is absolute and trustworthy in all that they declare. The problem for us is that if we were to have such a perfect judge in this world, then that judge would turn around and render every single one of us as guilty and condemned. Because the reality is we all, all fall short of the glorious standards of God. Like the rest of humanity, before Christ, we were by nature object of the wrath of God. Paul makes this transition from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 7. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about what we were, but in verses 4 through 7, we begin to see what God has done. Here we see the unmerited grace of God on display. May you know that verses one through three are fundamental to our understanding of verses four through seven. Without a correct diagnosis of humanity, we will not grasp the wonder and the magnitude of God's love and of His grace. So, verse four says, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions." made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 6 says, And raised us up with us, well, with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So, uh, after spending three verses describing our desperate situation, Paul now introduces us to the glorious contrast. Verse 4 begins with that beautiful phrase, but God. We were all destined to experience the wrath of God, which would have been the fair and just punishment from God because we have all offended Him, in his righteousness, with our sin and with our trespass. But in verse number four, we see hope. Verse number four, we see the hope of salvation because of the mercy and love of God. The motivation for God's action lies in his character alone. He has great love for those who were objects of his wrath. He is rich in mercy. Those incomparable riches are seen and expressed in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, how amazing is that? Having made it crystal clear that we are spiritually dead and that we are unable to do anything about our our spiritual deadness, God has done for us spiritually what He did for Christ physically. Christ was raised from death to life. So are we. Christ has been seated in the heavenly realms, and according to the scripture, so are we. The destiny and the privileges experienced by Christ have been made ours by the grace and the love of God. While other religions focus on concepts such as law, rituals, or and work, Christianity's key word is the word grace. It is because of God's grace that we can experience new life. And Paul wants us to know what God has done. He wants us to know where we now belong so that we can live life as God's people here and now. While we wait for the full experience of what has been won for us in Christ. We don't have to wait idly. He has a plan and he has a purpose. He wants us to be living for his glory right here and right now. The beauty of the church is that the church is an an expression of the surpassing grace of God. The church is the very image of God's grace on display in our world today. Verse number seven says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Which is to say, God saves rebellious sinners in order to to display his marvelous grace. Because we have been united together with Christ, then those who were once his enemy and objects of his wrath now are His beloved children. Because we have been united together with Christ, those who once had no mercy now experience His mercy. Because we've been united with Christ, those who were once without hope now possess a living hope, and it's all because of Jesus. Therefore, God's glory will be on display for all eternity. So we start from what we were in verses 1 through 3. And what we were is we were hopeless, we were helpless, we were spiritually lost, separated, we were dead in a spiritual sense. And then we see in verses 4 through 7 what God has done the unmerited grace of God being displayed in and through his son Jesus Christ. Now we get to consider the necessary human response. To all of that. And that response is found in verses 8 through 10. And that response is faith alone. All that to say that the introduction is now complete. Now let's get into the meat of the message. Faith alone. That's our concept that we're wrestling through today. Look at verse number 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we continue to to look at, at your word, Father, I pray that we would experience a freshness of your word today. God, help us to see clearly what it is that you're trying to show to us about salvation. That we trust in the final authoritative word of God. God. Help us to see that salvation, according to the word of God, is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Be with us as we continue. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want you to realize that Spiritually dead people are by very definition, they are incapable of raising themselves up from their moral graves. They are incapable of doing anything in and of themselves to rescue themselves. Therefore, if the spiritually dead are to rise, if they are to be made alive together with Christ, then God must do these things in and for them as a free gift of His grace. That is exactly what Paul says in verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved. Paul already mentions this idea back in verse number 5. In fact, verse number 5, he kind of interrupts his thought with with the proclamation that for grace you've been saved. Look back at verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made alive together with Christ, and then he interjects in the midst of his thought, by grace you have been saved. Salvation is grounded in the grace of God. And the grace that results in salvation is received through faith. Never forget, we are saved because of grace. Grace. We are saved on the basis of grace. Salvation is attained through faith, yes. But we are not saved because of faith. We are not saved on the basis of faith. Faith does not save anyone. Faith is only the instrument by which salvation is received. You get it? Let me give you an illustration. Maybe it will help. Faith is like a syringe that delivers life-saving medicine to a person who's about to die. That syringe doesn't save the person from death. No, the medicine does. But the medicine was received in that person's life through the use of the syringe. And so without the syringe, recovery would be impossible. Likewise, without faith, Salvation is impossible. In verses 8 and 9, Paul gives one of the clearest biblical definitions of grace. Here he explains what grace is, and he also explains what grace is not. He does so in such a way that these two verses are some of the most crucial verses in, in the entire Bible. So what does Paul say about grace? How does Paul define it? First of all, I want you to notice that he says that if salvation is by grace, then it is not a result of works. So salvation by grace is the very opposite of salvation by works. We are saved either by God's doing or by our own religious or moral efforts. Which one is it? There's no middle ground. It's an either or scenario. Verses 8 and 9 are so important for us to understand. If we misunderstand grace, then we misunderstand ourselves. We misunderstand God. We misunderstand our Savior. I believe that we tend to think of faith as something that we offer to God in order to take hold of what He wants to give to us. But that is the misunderstanding of faith. Salvation is the free gift of God. If you offer something in exchange for something, then that no longer is free. So so, some people have this idea that we offer faith to God to take hold of what he wants to give to us. But if that's the case, then Paul's initial diagnosis of humanity would be wrong because dead people cannot take hold of, nor can dead people offer anything. They're dead. If faith is dependent upon us, then we're not really dead in our sin and trespass. See, the reality is much more serious. We cannot make decisions for ourselves. We may appear to choose God, but that's only because He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. It is deeply humbling to know that salvation is completely from God. We deserve nothing but condemnation, yet He makes us His children. The concept of salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. Take seriously the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Therefore, if we're ever to be restored unto God, then it will be the doing not of dead people, it'll be the doing of a living God. Salvation by works misrepresents the character of God. Salvation by works kind of paints this picture of God needing to be paid off because of His kindness. Salvation by grace, on the other hand, well, that says that God's not like that at all. Grace proclaims that God saves us, that He redeems us, and that He loves us out of the overflow of His goodness and His character. Salvation by grace maintains that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is enough. It was His sacrifice that appeased all of God's wrath against sin. And and it is His sacrifice that, that means that the merit of our salvation can be complete because Jesus paid it all. It was all accomplished through Him. So much of our theology depends upon us getting this point correct. We are saved by grace, Paul says, not as a result of works. Our salvation comes to us, he says, through faith. I mean, this is clear. This is clear not only here in Ephesians chapter 2, but elsewhere in the Word of God. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And yet, there is something that we must do in this process of salvation. What we must do is we must believe. We must exercise faith. Now, in saying that, it raises an important question because Paul has been arguing that salvation is completely God's doing, not ours. Salvation is a free gift, given to us by the sheer goodness of of God's love and His grace. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is not deserved by anyone. However, look at verse 8. Paul tells us that we must exercise faith in order to be saved. So how can that be? How can God require our faith to be the necessary conduit through which salvation occurs, but still say that salvation is wholly and completely by Him? I think to answer that question, we have to consider the nature of faith. Faith, by definition, faith means to trust or to rely upon someone or something. For instance, as you came in today, If you have faith in your chair or in the pew upon which you are sitting, then you did not hesitate to place the entire weight of your body upon its frame. You exercise faith in your seat. In other words, you trust that it was sturdy enough to bear the burden of your entire body mass, and so you sat down. Now, check it out. You sat down, and when you did, your chair or your pew itself, that is what's doing all the work right now. That is what's holding you in place. It is your chair or your pew that's doing all the work, not your faith in your chair or the pew that's doing work. Faith neither adds to the strength of your seat, nor does faith or aid in strengthening your seat. Faith merely relies upon it. So, in salvation, if you have faith in Jesus Christ to save your soul, then you will not hesitate to place the entire weight of your salvation into His hands. Do you believe that He is able to do all that needs to be done in order for your salvation to be complete. In other words, do you trust the entire weight of your salvation to Jesus? If you do, then it is Jesus, not your faith in Jesus, that does all the work. Your faith neither adds to nor aids in the work of Jesus Christ. Your faith merely rests and relaxes in in, in what Christ has accomplished for you. Faith then, by definition, adds nothing to its object. Faith merely rests upon the strength of its object. May you know that salvation is all by grace. Even the faith, that we have to take hold of His promises is a gift given to us by the grace of God. Therefore, our salvation and the faith by which we receive that salvation is all credited to the Father. In verse number 10, we even learn there's more to it because in verse number 10, we see that even our good works are the result of God's doing. Paul reminds us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, some people would argue that the theology of of the grace alone salvation, in other words, the theology that is built entirely upon God's grace would, would leave people who believe that unconcerned about how they're to live their lives they just live their lives however they want and they rest upon God's grace and God's grace alone. But, but that, that mindset is a misrepresentation of what Scripture is saying. If, if you preach and you teach by salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, some people will begin to, to believe that it doesn't matter how you behave in life just as long as you've made some profession of faith along the way. But that kind of criticism or that kind of thinking totally misrepresents and completely misunderstands what Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10 is actually proclaiming. This verse states clearly that God desires His people to be engaged in good works. That we are to be on display of the grace of God into this world. And so God, not only He's given us a new desire, that God has also given us a special ability to do the good works that He has created for us to do. Which means God not only expects us to do good works, God made plans for those good works to happen before we were even in existence. So God not only expects us to do the good works that He made plans for us to do, He also equips us to do the good works that He expects for us to do. I mean, God's involved in all of it. It is all because of Him. Everything. We've been made alive together with Christ and we've been created in Christ for good works. Now how beautiful is that? That God gets the credit for all of us. All of it. Not us. Him. For by grace, through faith, in Christ, that's the way salvation occurs we can take credit for none of it what a humbling concept for us to to embrace and to understand that god gets the glory for it all how does he choose why does he choose on what basis were decisions made by god from eternity past i have no idea according to his own plans according to his own desires in order that he might receive the greatest glory that's due unto him. That's the only answer I've got. May you know that God calls for salvation to be a card to the instrument of faith. That, 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 that's how it goes, right? Some people think that you can just pick and choose what it is that you want to do and how you want to do it. When it comes to the nature of salvation dead people apart from Christ are incapable of doing anything about their spiritual condition. That's just what the Word of God teaches. Does that make sense to us? No, not completely. But is that what His Word is teaching us? Yes, it it, it is. And it's showing us. Go back one more time. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse number 4. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, spiritually incapable of doing anything, made us alive. Who made us alive? God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not only that, He raised us up with Him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show us surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The key, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The grace and the faith that you have been given to receive the salvation that is extended in and through Jesus Christ. Grace is the hope that we have to escape what we rightfully deserve, and that's hell. Faith is the means by which grace is applied into our lives. So both grace and faith are given to us by God. Next week, we're going to look at how this is all accomplished in and through Christ and Christ alone. There is no other hope of salvation apart from Jesus Christ. We'll get in that next week. This week, I want you to consider, have you received the grace and the faith from God? If so, do you realize that His good works planned for you to accomplish for His glory? May you pursue that with reckless abandonment to everything else, may you live wholly and completely to honor and to glorify our Father. Because we as His church are the very display of His grace to this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, for this time to gather, for your word. again I pray that we would take hold of these truths that we see in your word that it would completely shape us as individuals and motivate us to rightfully live in the midst of darkness that's all around us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for both the grace and the faith that you give unto us so that we might believe. God, help us to to share your word with everyone. May we have such a desire for all to come to know you that you would season all of our conversations with the flavor of the gospel. God, help us to trust in you in all things. In the midst of the trials and the heartaches that we're experiencing now, help us not to lose confidence in you. May we be reminded that you are sovereign in and through all things. And while certain things might not make sense to us in this world, we can trust in you. God, we thank you. Be with us as we go from this place. Help us to live a life that truly glorifies you. And God, if it be okay, we ask that you but grant us enough time to, to come back together next week to further celebrate who you are and what you're doing and what you've done. We ask your blessings upon us as we go. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.